it seemed that things had gone pretty well for the Jewish religious leaders. They must have been feeling very pleased with themselves. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, one of Jesus' closest friends, had come to them at night and provided the information they needed, Jesus' exact whereabouts. They sent a group to arrest Jesus, and they managed to bring him in without there being any bloodshed. Well, the servant of the high priest had his ear cut off by Peter, but Jesus healed him, so that didn't really count. And I'm quite sure that the religious leaders didn't spend more than a few seconds thinking about that miracle. They put Jesus on trial in a phony, illegal court. And those few members of the Sanhedrin who were sympathetic to Jesus, well, they weren't invited. Of course, Jesus was found guilty and deserving of death. They took Jesus to Pontius Pilate. He didn't seem to know what to do with him. And at that moment, everything seemed to hang in the balance. But the crowd, who they thought might riot in Jesus' favor, actually demanded his crucifixion. It was too good to be true. Then they had the satisfaction of seeing that young upstart who dared to tell them that they didn't know God. They had the satisfaction of seeing him flogged, beaten, mocked, spat on, jeered at. They saw him labor up that hill, carrying his cross in agony. He didn't look so sure of himself then. What a great moment that must have been for the scribes and the Pharisees and all who hated Jesus. When Jesus was nailed to a cross, they were certain they had won. There was darkness over the whole land, and a few hours later, Jesus died. It was disappointing for them that a member of the Sanhedrin, one of their own, Joseph of Arimathea, had given Jesus the honor of being buried in a tomb, his own family tomb. But that didn't change the fact that Jesus was dead. They'd heard a rumor that Jesus claimed he would rise from the dead. So they had the tomb sealed and they posted a guard just in case the disciples tried to steal the body. Yep, the religious leaders must have been feeling very pleased with themselves. It had all gone surprisingly well. That is, until the Sunday, when a group of badly shaken guards, almost certainly temple guards, not Roman soldiers, they came in babbling about an earthquake and an angel and an empty tomb. And you can just imagine the faces of those religious leaders. Things had now gotten really out of hand, and they had to make the best of a bad situation. So they paid off the guards, and they told them to say that the disciples had come during the night and stolen the body while they were sleeping. Many Jews believe this account, and uh, many to this day, no doubt, believe this account. So how can we be confident that Jesus really did rise from the dead? What is the evidence 
What is the evidence? Well, firstly, the tomb was empty on that first Easter Sunday. The religious leader thought that sealing the tomb and posting a guard would prevent the very thing that they were now trying to explain. And if Jesus was just a man, the seal on the tomb and the guard would have been enough to keep his body in the tomb. But Jesus was not just a man. And the religious leaders didn't factor in the possibility of Jesus literally rising from the dead. Incidentally, we know about this rumor of the disciples stealing the body because it's written here in Matthew's Gospel. If you were going to make this up, you wouldn't go to the trouble of stating that the tomb was guarded and then immediately open the door to the possibility that maybe the guards didn't do their job properly. Matthew is simply stating the facts and addressing a well-known rumor, this rumor that the disciples had stolen the body. But for that rumor to circulate in the first place, the tomb had to be empty. And if the disciples had stolen the body, they would have known that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Most of the disciples were killed, martyred, for proclaiming that Jesus is alive. Peter, Jesus' closest friend, was crucified upside down. Would they have really suffered so greatly for something that they knew to be a lie? And think about it. When Jesus was arrested, the disciples ran away and hid. They were terrified. When Jesus was crucified, their world fell apart. They were grief-stricken, scared, confused, disillusioned. And yet within a few days, they were full of joy, courage, and purpose, telling the whole world that Jesus is alive. How do we explain that sudden change in the disciples if Jesus didn't literally rise from the dead? Anyone who's ever lost a loved one, especially if it was unforeseen and unexpected, will know that the last thing on the disciples' mind would have been devising and executing an elaborate hoax. Even without the guard, it's highly unlikely the disciples would have attempted to steal the body. Then we have the evidence of the witnesses. The first people to discover the empty tomb was a group of women. And by the way, the angel rolled the stone away, not to let Jesus out, but to show the women that he wasn't inside. In Jewish and Greco-Roman culture, women were treated as second-class citizens. They weren't even allowed to give evidence in a court of law. Their testimony wasn't considered to be reliable. So if you're going to make up a story about someone rising from the dead, the last people you would have as your primary witnesses would be a group of women. You would say that Peter or John or any of the men were the first to get to the tomb, the first to witness it. Unless, of course, you were simply recording 
exactly what happened. And Jesus didn't just appear to the two Marys. Actually, from the other Gospels, it seems that there were at least five women in this group that went to the tomb. But beyond that, Jesus appeared to hundreds of people. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. He said, Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So if you're reading this in the first century, you could verify it. You could go and speak to one of those 500 witnesses and hear about this for yourself. He goes on. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Paul doesn't mention the group of women at the empty tomb, not because he's anti-women, but because he, he's given evidence that would be admissible in a court of law. It is undeniable that a large number of people believe that they had seen and in many cases interacted with the risen Jesus. The disciples in particular, they spoke with him. They verified his wounds. They ate meals with him. That even, it says, they watched him eat a piece of broiled fish. That's very specific, isn't it? That's very specific. And when you take all these accounts together, there's a mixture of fear and worship and skepticism. For example, the verses following our reading today say this. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped but some doubted. These accounts have such a raw honesty about them, don't they? Those words, some doubted, it just rings true, doesn't it? And so there's a lot of evidence for the resurrection. And there's one more piece of evidence that we're going to look at in a few moments. But the evidence, and we haven't had time to consider it all today, but it's, it's, it's overwhelming. In one of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's famous Sherlock Holmes novels, the great detective says these words. He says, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. We can rely on the truth of Jesus' resurrection. But alongside the evidence, we must place the implication. In other words, Jesus has died. It's true. But what does it, sorry, Jesus has risen from the dead. That's true as well. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Because we know as a general rule, people do not rise from the dead. That's miraculous. That is something that only God could do. The relevance of Christianity hinges on the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity is completely irrelevant. But if it did, well, that's very good reason for believing that Jesus was and is who he claimed to be, God in person. As one commentator wrote on this, the, the resurrection, hangs the truth of the kingdom and the supreme evidence of the existence of God. Jesus came into the world. He lived a perfect life, and then he died in our place. He took our sin and guilt and shame upon himself. 
so that if we put our trust in him, we can be restored to a right relationship with God, a relationship that lasts forever. When Jesus rose from the dead, he opened up a way through death to everlasting life for those who put their trust in him. But it is a choice. It is a choice. We can accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior and worship him and devote our lives to him. Or we can reject him and all that he offers. Choosing Jesus is not just life-changing. It's eternity-changing. And one thing's for sure, if we put our faith in Christ, we will never be the same again because Jesus transforms lives. Jesus transforms lives. And that's the last bit of evidence that I want us to consider today. The two Marys approach Jesus' tomb in mourning. They were devastated, heartbroken. They left full of joy, running to tell the other disciples that Jesus had risen, running to tell them this good news. Their lives were changed in an instant. The disciples themselves were transformed and their characters changed. Peter, who out of fear denied Jesus three times, became the rock upon whose fearless witness the early church was built. James and John, who were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. James and John, who wanted to call down fire from heaven and completely destroy a Samaritan village because the people there had refused to welcome Jesus. Those two hotheads became ambassadors of God's love and agents of his peace. James was, in fact, the first of the disciples to be martyred. Not the first Christian martyr, that was Stephen, but the first of the disciples. He was beheaded by King Herod. In the end, he was the subject to violence, not the perpetrator of it. He was a changed man. The Apostle Paul, who was present at the stoning of Stephen, giving his approval, Paul, who did everything in his power to destroy the church, became the man most responsible for building the early church. He spread the gospel throughout the whole of the known world, virtually at walking pace. The transformation of Jesus, sorry, the transformation of Jesus' followers is good evidence that the resurrection is true, that it happened. But hopefully, you can see the implications of this for you and for me. And for all those who belong to Jesus. We are the evidence. We are the evidence to a disbelieving world that Jesus is alive. That is our calling as Christians. But the evidence is only as strong as our witness. Jesus changes lives, but he doesn't do it by force. We have to engage with the process, and it is a, a lifelong process. We are all a work in progress. And because we're human, and we're sinful, 
and flawed and selfish and easily distracted. We have periods where it's like we're just treading water. It's like we're not moving forwards. We're not changing very much at all. Sometimes we can even feel like we're, we're going backwards. And if you're thinking, yeah, that's me. That's where I'm at today. The good news is this. Jesus is alive and he wants to be part of your life. And you can pick up that relationship with Jesus and keep moving forwards at any point. At any point. Easter is a particularly special time because, um, you know, our, our regulars are here. Those are here every week. Uh, the, the people that come from time to time are, are here with us. Uh, we have people who are sort of occasional visitors. We have people who are first-time visitors who've never been to this church before. And it's wonderful that we can all gather together on this Easter Sunday. I want to encourage all of you, all of us, I want to encourage you to engage or re-engage or keep engaging with the life and the ministry of the church. Pray with us. Worship with us. Gather with us each week and join with us in proclaiming the wonderful truth that Jesus is alive. We are a big part of the evidence of the resurrection. We are a big part of the evidence of the resurrection. And we want to present the strongest possible evidence to a disbelieving and skeptical world. Let us live together as people of the resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us by your Spirit, and we pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit now, that you will animate us and give us a passion for your name. And we recognize that all of us, all of us have, have times where we kind of feel stilted and stunted and, and not going anywhere in our journey of faith. And we pray that today all of us collectively We'll say, no, this is going to be a turning point for us. We're going to keep advancing God's kingdom. We're going to keep building his church. We're going to keep being the evidence of the resurrection to a disbelieving world. Father, fill us with a sense of excitement and hope and celebration and gratitude that we may live in obedience to you all the days of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.